Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. We'll continue this evening with our reading from Shijiva Goswami's Paramatma Sandarbha. We are in the 19th Anacheda, which is the beginning of the discussion of the nature of the uh, jiva. And in this Anacheda, Shijiva Goswami deals with opening the discussion of the nature of the jiva by first quoting a verse from the Padma Purana dealing with uh, the letter M and Om, which is, signifies the jiva. And in this, in these four verses from the Padma Purana, uh, different characteristics, Swarup Lakshana, the, of the jiva is, uh, is given. And then Jiva Goswami goes on to quote Jamatri Muni, who gives a who in giving a commentary uses the same characteristics, but he adds three specific characteristics uh, to basically what's presented in the Padma Purana. So Jiva starts here by quoting the Padma Purana and then giving these four verses from Jamatri Muni. Nineteen. And in doing so, he opens the discussion which will allow him to elaborate these characteristics of the Jivatma um, primary characteristics, not secondary. And also, in quoting Jamatri Muni, he wants to bring out three specific characteristics which are not recognized by the Advaitin school as to the nature of the self. As we know, the Advaitins, they're their self is only Brahman, and their conception of Jiva is only a projection of Brahman or a covering of Brahman by ignorance within the material realm. So that's they they do not recognize specific characteristics of the Jiva separate from those characteristics which are Brahman. So Jiva's, Jiva takes, has taken this particular approach by first quoting from the Padma Purana and then bringing these additional characteristics in from Jamatri Muni, uh, which are knowership, cognition, um, doership or agency, conation, and experiential capacity, distinct. So the jiva has these three things. The jiva itself can know. You know, it has knowership. It has the ability to act, and it also has the ability to experience um, affectivity, 
it can be affected by affectivity. You said it can be affected? Yes. Okay. Experience. It, it, the jiva, can be affected by what it experiences. It's, it can, what it experiences can have an effect upon it. Affectivity. The experiential capacity. Experiential capacity. So we can experience, and the experience can can have an effect. So, affectivity. These three characteristics are given. Then, Sachin Narayan Das, in his commentary, which is quite extensive to this opening. Uh, section dealing with the jiva gets into a very detailed um, explanation for us of different concepts in different schools of thought as they exist in India. And it's a, it's a novel approach because what it allows us to do by being introduced to these concepts regarding the jiva is more deeply understand what is the conception that we accept from the Veda as Vaishnavs. It's the approach that is used. First, there is Purvapaksa. It's a it's a it's a logical presentation of the opposition's viewpoint and a logical discussion, a spiritual discussion, a discussion by cultured people involves that we we fully bring out what the opponent feels and what their conception is, then we defeat it. We don't defeat it based on the way we feel we based it we defeat it based on well it's either logic or scripture so if we defeat it based simply on logic well then that's just another kind of logic so jiva does not really favor that kind of of an approach in dealing with an opponent's position he says, if we're going to argue, our, we need to be able to support our argument primarily by Shastra. Now, of course, the quality with that is it's not simply based on your idea. You have some, some sound backing. But, of course, all Shastra, as we know, can be interpreted according to how it's presented. So that Shastra has to be itself well-founded. Well and for that, well, Jiva starts out this whole presentation of the Sandarbhas by saying, if we're going to go to Shastra, well, let's go to the most enlightening form of Shastra that's available. Let me tell you about Shastra. So in the Tattva Sandarbha, he introduced the different 
types of Shastra, Shruti, Smriti, Puranadi, Pancharatra. And he said, if we look to all of these, we see that they all bow down to the Bhagavat Purana. This is the most enlightened of all Shastric presentations. Why? Well, because it's based on the revelation of Srila Vyasudeva who presented all the Shastra for us. So, it really does not get better than that. So, if we accept the Srimad Bhagavatam as the shining Purana amongst all Shastra, and we're able to use that as our primarily evidence or Praman, then we're going to be in the best position. So in the last discussion, we went over um, one of the seven kinds, one of the seven theologies coming out of India uh, regarding the nature of the soul. And we didn't get further than that. So we'll continue uh, going on with these other schools. So the school from last week was the uh, Sharvaka or Lokayata school. And if you remember, this school has a what we would consider a very shallow idea regarding the nature of the self. Their philosophy is very simple. There are earth, water, fire, and air. And these elements sometimes conglomerate together into a body. And when they come together into a body, then there can arise consciousness. And this consciousness is the jiva. Does it say anything about what they think about death? Like, what's the difference between a live body and a dead body? It real they we really don't have, as pointed out by the commentator, oh, right, right, right. anything from this school directly. Right. We only have Purvapaksha or their ideas put forth as Purvapaksha by other schools of thought. So. We don't, we can't really ask their, you know, ask their scriptures or ask their writers because there is no history of these schools written from their viewpoint, only their viewpoint as presented as Purvapaksha or the opponent's position. So now we'll continue this evening and we go on to Buddhism. What's the Buddhist? What do they feel about the soul? So Gautama Buddha, the founder of the school, does not make any definitive statement about the Atma's existence. He spoke of five khandas, or aggregates, which constitute the body and mind of all sentient beings. The pronoun I may refer to any one of these or all of them collectively. These include, so these are the five basic aggregates they're called here, 
and we'll just go through these and you'll get an idea. As I said when we came into this discussion, to try to fully assimilate, the, you'd have to study these philosophies deeply to know exactly what their, what their logic, reasoning, and full um, idea is. But here we have an overview with the purpose of giving us great Purvapaksa. What are, these are the opponent's ideas. Now, why does the idea put forth in the Bhagavatam, why is it more comprehensive? Why is it more logical? Why does it ring true to us? That's what we should come away from this discussion with. And it's going to be continued for many Anuchetas, many sections of this Paramatma Sandarbha are going to deal with the nature of the soul of the jiva. Why? Well, if you know the control, you're going to be in a better position to know the controller. So the five khandas are rupa or form consisting of the four primary elements, earth, water, fire, and air, which provide corporeality of the body and senses. Second is Vedana, or feelings, in the form of pleasure, pain, and indifference, arising out of contact with the five senses and the mind. So first we have form. Form comes about by these primary elements, earth, water, fire, and air. And then we have feelings that are experienced in relationship, coming from giving us pleasure, pain, or just indifference. The next one is sanjna, or conceptual knowledge or perception related to the five senses in the mind. We can contemplate what is experienced. Then we have sankara, or samskara, or volitional states in connection with form, sound, smell, taste, touch, and metal objects. We can make decisions. The self can decide to do something in relationship to its environment. And vijnana, or consciousness, also related to the five senses and the mind. So we can imagine from this very brief overview that each of these has some much deeper relative uh, significance in the Buddhist philosophy. Because from the overview, there seems to be some profound overlapping in my estimation. So we'll read on. As regards to Buddha's view on the Atma, Dr. Radhakrishna writes, While agreeing with the Upanishads that the world of origination, decrease, and suffering is not the true refuge of the soul, Buddha is silent about the Atman 
enunciation in the enunciated in the Upanishads. So they agree with the idea in the in the Upanishads. Uh, regarding the world of origination, decrease, and suffering, and that it really is separate from the self or the soul, but they don't have anything to say about what is the soul. So as we go on here, it's, it's a very interesting approach that they have. He neither the Buddha, affirms nor denies its existence. Doesn't come into their discussion in the way that we discuss it. Buddha contends, contents himself with a physical phenomenon and does not venture to put forth any theory of the soul. To posit a soul seems to Buddha a step beyond the descriptive standpoint. What we know is the phenomenal self. Buddha knows there is something else. He is never willing to admit that the soul is only a combination of elements, but he refuses to speculate on what else it may be. They just don't go there. Now, we would say, well, why don't they go there? And this is brought out as we go on in this particular commentary explaining the Buddhist ideas, the Buddhist idea, the way they look at things. The reason for Buddha's ambivalence in regards to the Atma is that his he disregarded the Vedic authority and sought to establish his path exclusively on the basis of experience and logic. So there's no reliance on the Veda. Now remember, what's what from a more, a broader outlook of the history of these different philosophies, we could say what brought about the necessity for a Buddha coming forth and giving this non-Shastric presentation of existence. What brought it about? Well, it was brought about in our logical idea, and Buddha also, you know, admits this, and it's put forth according to Vaishnav scholars that the necessity for the manifestation of Buddha was the Shastras are being misused. The, the, the followers of Shastra, the Veda, were only interested in the results of properly performed sacrifice, material opulence, and elevation to higher planets. And because that was their primary objective, that was their religiosity. That was their social religiosity. If we can sacrifice this animal, then we can go to heaven or we can attain this or that. So if we perform these sacrifices, then we're going to get what we want out of life. 
well, that's kind of a real short-sighted viewpoint of what's available to humanity at large from the Shastra. They basically diminished the Shastra into their personal servant. Oh, let me perform according to your direction and I'll get my result. And what was the downside of that? It's a lot of violence involved in those sacrifices. So one of the primary dictates of the Buddha was ahimsa, nonviolence. No, you can't accept a religion that just simply wants to hurt other entities. What kind of religion is that? So he wanted to curtail this short-sighted utilization of Vedic knowledge. And the best way is sometimes you throw out the baby and the bathwater and you start from scratch. And that's basically what Buddha did. Forget all that. And just listen to me. I've got another idea. And hear what I have to say. And he was quite charming because he's an incarnation of the Supreme Lord. So <laughs> they were quite attracted to him. You know, so they started worshiping him in, in some way, whereas he said, well, don't worship anybody. But, you know, this is a good way. Let's give up this, you know, violence and live nicely. So now we have a little perspective on the advent of the Buddha. So there's no Shastric side to Buddhism. It does come in a little later in some of the followers of Buddha, later generations, but in the beginning there was none. Um, however, the later followers of Buddha, like Nargarjuna, adopted a definitive stance on the Atma's non-existence in ex exclusion of the five skandhas. So those five principles. Uh, commentary continues. There are various schools of Buddhism having different opinions about the objective world and its perceiver. One of the most popular is called Vigyanavad or Yogacara, regarded as a form of subjective idealism. This doctrine holds that consciousness alone exists and fluctuates at every moment. So Buddhism is very much, as we read on here, we'll see it's very much about living in the moment. Every phenomenal appearance is momentary. Everything that arises out of cause and conditions is necessarily impermanent. The preceding moment is the cause of the succeeding moment. Change is the law of the universe. External objects do not exist outside of thought or ideation. Objects do not exist outside of your conceiving of them. <clears throat> the empirical ego is also unreal. 
the apparent objects of the world are like a river that flows constantly. There is nothing in the world that is not momentary. Consciousness manifests itself both as subject as well as object. It arises out of its own seed and then manifests itself as, as an external object. Just as in a dream mental objects are projected out of one's own consciousness, so too is the waking state. Empirical objects are but percepts, percepts, percepts projected out of the store of consciousness. There is neither subject nor object, but only a succession of ideas. It's very much an in-the-now kind of experiential, in-the-moment idea of existence. Everything that you're experiencing is coming out of your own consciousness. And that consciousness, external objects do not exist outside of thought. You just think them up. It would be interesting to talk to a Buddhist about philosophy. What's that mean when we get to a community, or like in this room, are we collectively imagining what's here? Because your experience is probably similar to mine, but it may not be. There would be some difference in it. So your perception of the harmonium in mine would be somewhat different. But what put it there in the first place? Did you think it up or did I think that you thought it up? Or did you and I think it up together? Sometimes we can't tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Buddhism, very much. Like I remember reading something in college when I was looking to different schools of thought. And the idea of Zen Buddhism. So I'm reading a book on Zen Buddhism, trying to understand what you know, they're trying to present their philosophy. And I was struck by one comment. One of, their, one of the things that was put forth in this literature was, well, if you have a chicken trapped inside a glass bottle, how do you get that chicken out of the bottle? There it's out. That's it. <laughs> That's Zen Buddhism. You you can think your way through these things. I guess the chicken will have to think his way. <laughs> the chicken didn't really exist in the bottle. He was only in the bottle due to your... Okay. Right. So Buddhism, very interesting. Buddhists don't really deal with the nature of the Atma, the nature of the soul. They're very much into into the now of existence and their whole philosophy revolves to some extent about that they accept that there's elements and those elements but they do not the buddha did not even delve into explaining the nature of the soul or the atma next school jainism 
This school posits that in its pure state, the Atma possesses infinite perception, knowledge, bliss, and power. It is all perfect and distinct from the body. The number of Atmas is infinite. The dimension of the self is considered to be neither atomic nor all-pervading. It is medium-sized and determined by the magnitude of the body it inhabits. The Atma occupies the whole of the body. It is of very small size when it originates in the womb, but goes on expanding as the body grows in size. In each successive transmigration, a particular jiva con contracts and expands in its magnitudinal proportions. A bound self is vitiated by subtle particles of fine matter, karma, that accue to the jiva due to its former actions and intentions. The means through which karma clings to the self is called ashrava, or the influx of karma matter, which is the effect of bodily, verbal, and mental actions. It is the cause of bondage of the self. This bondage is beginningless. So we have a soul. The soul inhabits a body, and according to the size of the body, the soul expands or contracts. It's, it has the ability to perceive, to have knowledge, uh, to experience bliss, and it has power. And it's perfect. It's all perfect and distinct from the body. But karmic matter clings to the soul and affects it. Ashrava, or the influx of karmic matter, which is the effect of bodily, verbal, and mental actions. So our actions come with us and they make up the matter which is ourself. It's, it's an interesting philosophy. Uh, we'll go on to the next school, Nyaya Vaisiseka. The school of Nyaya and Vaisiseka share a common view about the Atma. They both claim that the Atma is an eternal substance devoid of parts or divisions and bereft of consciousness. Consciousness, therefore, is an incidental quality of the Atma that arises only when it is in contact with the mind. The Atma is an all-pervading substance. The substratum of knowledge, gyan, or consciousness, and is motionless. When a self becomes liberated, which means disconnected from the mind, it remains as an inert substance.
The self is a real subject of experience, a real knower, and a real agent. Each self has a manas, or psychic instrument, during its empiric existence and is separated from it in liberation. It is distinct from the body, the senses, and the mind. There is a separate atma in each body, thus there are an infinite numbers of atmas. So it's a logical approach. And again, it appears that their idea, consciousness, therefore, is an incidental quality of the Atma that arises only when it's in contact with the mind. So only there's only awareness when there's contact with the material manifestation, with the material body. Otherwise, it's unconscious. It just exists. It's an all-pervading <laughs> Something akin to Brahman, you could say in, in some regard. We'll go on to the Mimamsa school. There are two major schools of Mimamsa. One founded by Kumarila Bhatta and the other by Prabhakara. Both admit the plurality of, plurality of individual beings and consider the self as an eternal, all-pervading substance that is a substratum of consciousness. The self is a real knower, the subject of experience, and an agent. Well, at least they have that, which is one of the aspects that Jiva wanted to say. There's a distinguishing characteristic of the Atma in that it has these, these characteristics. It can know, it can uh, act, and it can experience. It is distinct from the body, the senses, the mind, and knowledge. Then we have a little bit of the distinction of these two uh, schools. Prabhakara, like the Nyaya, Vaisiseka school accepts that the self is essentially unconscious. Consciousness is an incidental property of the self when it is in contact with the mind. Cognition, effect, volition, and agency are the properties of the self and arise due to merit and demerit in the conditional state. In the liberated state, the self remains as a pure substance divested of, it, divested of its qualities, including consciousness and bliss. So we only experience in relationship to a body and liberation. Liberation from the body is, sounds like close to nothing to me. <laughs> uh, Prabhakara says that the self is merely the substrate of the cognition I know but not as the nature of consciousness I know but I'm it's separate from being conscious 
If the Atma were of the nature of consciousness, their philosophy goes on, it would result in the defect of consciousness being both support and supported, or in other words, subject and object. It is everyone's experience that subject and object are distinct from each other. Therefore, the Atma, Atma must be different from consciousness, implying that it is non-conscious since consciousness does not constitute its essence. This is the Mimamsa school. All these schools, excepting the Advaita Vad, and of course the Vaishnav school, it's all based on they've arrived at these conclusions by logical inference. Kumarila Bhatta, however, accepts the Atma as both party, partly, Conscious and partly unconscious. Going a little deeper here. He says that in deep sleep, there is both consciousness and unconsciousness. If all knowledge were lost during sleep, deep sleep, then one would not remember things on waking up. But such is not the case. Therefore, it must be accepted that there is a stable consciousness in deep sleep, and this consciousness... When united with the impressions formed from past experiences, makes us recognize and recollect. But like Prabhakara and the Nyaya Vaisisika, Kumarila too believes that in the liberated state, the self remains as a pure substance divested of its qualities of consciousness, agency, and bliss. Though he adds, that is in deep sleep, the self is then characterized by potential consciousness. Yes, I concur. Sounds like mental speculation. <laughs> to come up with these, okay, well, if I have this and then I want this, then that means, you know. Moving on to the next school of thought. Yoga and Sankhya. The school of Yoga and Sankhya considers, consider Prakriti, primordial nature, and Purusha, the conscious living being or self, as the two fundamental principles of the cosmos. Purusha is the principle of pure consciousness distinct from mind, intellect, ego, body, and senses. It is not merely a substance that possesses consciousness as a quality. Rather, consciousness is its very essence. It is the ultimate knower that is the foundation of all knowledge. It is the subject of knowledge and can never become its object. It is beyond time and space and devoid of any activity or modification. It is eternal and all-pervading. Sankhya and Yoga believe in the polarity, polarity, I'm sorry, plurality of Purushas. In other words, they're distinct. Uh, bliss is different from consciousness and is a product of sattva gun. Knowledge is a modification of the mind called chitta-vritti. So the Yoga school, the Sankhya school again is is primarily based on the two principles of 
Prakriti, nature, and Purusha, the conscious living entity. And its concept of the self is, it is consciousness, it is awareness of those two principles, primordial nature and its conscious, its, its being a conscious observer. On the upside, they do believe that there are individual atmas or selves. Now we go on to Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta primarily believes that the jiva is non-different from Brahman. However, this identity with Brahman is realized only when the jiva transcends the self-identification with its temporary phenomenal body-mind complex. The jiva is of the nature of consciousness, eternal, beginningless, and indestructible. But this reality is the truth of the jiva as Brahman and not as a separate and independent entity. So no distinction between the jivatma and the paramatma or Brahman. There are different views among the Advaita scholars as to how Brahman comes to be identified as the jiva. The most prominent among them holds that the jiva is Brahman either covered by, delimited by, or reflected in ignorance. And we've been given some preliminary knowledge of this as early as the Tattvasandarbha. In his Brahma Sutra commentary, Sankar says, and the self is only the reflection of the higher Atma. Later, this concept became known as Pratibhimbavad, the theory of reflection. And then the, in, the, in the writings of two of his primary uh, followers. Sankar offers an explanation about the nature of the self while commenting on Brahma Sutra. He gives the examples of Akas, all-pervading space, being divided by various clay pots. As long as the pots are present, the one akasa appears to be divided. If the pots are removed or broken, the initial unity of akasa is reinstated. Even when the pots were present, space was still only one, but it appear, appeared as many in different pots. So as long as you have a body, then the Atma can, it's, it's still the one Brahman, but it has its individual pot-like form. So you, you're perceiving due to ignorance, different, a difference from yourself and Brahman. Remove the pot-like concept that's plaguing your consciousness see that all pots are the one pot as they see you're Narayan I'm Narayan we're all Narayan and then you have perfect Brahman realization this conception of being a pot 
or being a distinct Atma is due to ignorance. In the same way, the one Brahman becomes divided by avidya, or ignorance. There is only one reality, and that's Brahman. Brahman, or Atman, delimited by Upadis, is the jiva, who suffers and enjoys in accordance with its acts. When the Upadis are dissolved, the jiva is established in its supreme glory as Brahman. Just as one sees a rope, as it is when the illusion of it becomes a snake is dispelled. <clears throat> this theory later became known as Avacheda Vad, the theory, theory of limitation. In the writings of Bachaspati Mishra, Brahman as well as the jiva or individual self is neither inert, nor temporary, nor miserable. It is devoid of agency, experiential capacity, and knowership. Brahma Sutra, Sankar Bhashya. So here is what Jiva wants to refute, is this Sankar idea that the individual jiva has agency, can experience, and can have knowledge. Now he goes on to give a little bit of a summary of what we've heard so far. And then he'll deal specifically with uh, Advaita Vedanta. Because Advaita Vedanta is, the others are based on logic. These other schools of thought are based on logic, whereas uh, the Advaita school of Vedanta is based on Shastric. They use Shastra as an evidence. Because of this concept of refuting the argument by either logic, logical reasoning, or by Shastric evidence, because in the ultimate issue, Shastra holds more validity as a valid means of refuting the opponent in the opinion of Jiva Goswami. Therefore, in the rest of this discussion regarding the nature of the Jiva, he's going to refute the Advaitin misconception. Because if you defeat, and there is a logic for this, <laughs> which we'll come to, but the logic is quite simple, simply is if you defeat the larger opponent, the lesser opponents are, are automatically defeated. What they use is the, is a, uh, in the analogy is that of the wrestler. If you defeat the major, the major wrestler, then all the minor wrestlers mm -hmm. will, will automatically be defeated. Thank you so much for your association. <laughs>